It's Quechahela. I'm Nick Henry. And I'm Peter Underwood. Welcome, Welcome to, to Season 2 of Wheel Nerf Radio on CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Broadcasting from my traditional territory of Husainich and Lekwungen territory. This summer, instead of a weekly radio show, I have produced three podcast episodes of great Indigenous content. Peter has helped me produce this episode, which is all about local Indigenous food sovereignty. In The Saltwater People by Dave Elliott Sr., he writes, We have a rich heritage. With our knowledge of it, we have much to offer. It is still beautiful on our Saanich Peninsula, but we must all learn to follow the ways of our ancestors. If we bring back a deep respect for nature, we can be an example to everyone and prevent our beautiful land from being destroyed. Growing up in Husainich, we wish we learned more about living off the land and harvesting traditional foods. Because we didn't grow up with these foods, we felt disconnected from our heritage, which is why we chose the topic of Indigenous food sovereignty. We sat down with elders and food activists from the local Husainich and Lekwungen communities. Here is everyone featured in this episode. Oh, it's great to see him. To see him, to see him, to see um, hi everybody, my name is Papakia or Ashley Cooper and I come from Sartlip in Hussainich. Earl Claxton uh, Jr. in, in the English and Thessaiton uh, in the Sanchathan and uh, Kiapalino uh, from uh, Squamish, my mother's side, Kiapalino. Yeah, my name is Cheryl Bryce, and I'm a member of the Songhees Nation. Um, one of my traditional roles is uh, harvesting kwetlal, um, which is a traditional uh, food that grows within the kwetlal food system. Uh, most people would know as a karaoke ecosystem, so part of my role is uh, uh, sustaining this food system and managing it and passing that knowledge down. And so I guess, in a way, some of the youth call me one of the traditional knowledge holders. Hi, it's Quechel. My name is Sarah Jim, and I am of mixed ancestry, but my roots are in Sycom First Nation on the Saanich Peninsula. To start off this episode, we're asking everyone, what does Indigenous food sovereignty mean to you? Uh, indigenous food sovereignty means knowing about your own food our own food that our people have eaten for years and years and years, and um, knowing where to get it, able to have accessibility to your good food, whether it's uh, salmon, fish, clams, crabs, camas, anything like that, any kinds of the teas like rose hip tea or any teas that we use, whether it's uh, or the kachmin tea or whatever it might be, or any form of tea that we want to make, or skarnas tea or whatever it might be, know where it is, where to get it, uh, what time of year to get this this uh, food or tea, and um, there's no interference with it, no interference from anybody. You're still able to go and get what has always been ours given by the Great Spirit himself to us, whether it's a plant or a bark or a root or a medicine or a tea, and have full knowledge of that plant or tree or medicine and know how to interact with that plant, food or medicine in this quail in the language itself, so that um, you feel at home with it, 
We're at home right here in our own homeland. When you need to get medicine, then you know where to go, the name of that medicine, how to speak to that medicine, how to ask it for its help, and then how to prepare it for yourself or others or your loved ones and your family. That's food sovereignty to me. Uh, indigenous people having access to their foods everywhere they go. I think that uh, there was uh, great knowledge in regards to to the plants for for the Saanich anyway. They they looked uh, for four things in a plant. That was uh, food, tool, medicine, or indicator. And um, a lot of this knowledge has been uh, the Hunitan people haven't been very interested in in our knowledge of all the plants and everything here and what they're used for so <clears throat> part of the work I do is uh, using those plants and actually growing uh, native plants in the in the greenhouse and we always promote uh, native plants because they've been here for a long time and um, <clears throat> they're used to the climate here and so once you don't you don't really need to water them uh, unless you transplant them I guess and uh, then give them a chance to to reroot and then they you don't need to water them after that and I think water uh, on on the island right now is uh, at an all-time low and we have to do whatever we can to try and save those those fish that are drying up in the rivers so it, it's all kind of connected and uh, you can't just talk about one thing and then uh, say it's separate from the other they're they're all connected together I'll talk to it as it relates to the Kwatlao food system um, this is a traditional um, food system that mo most people know as the Garioke ecosystem today and it was an abundant here uh, 200 years ago 95% of it is completely gone, um, so we have less than 5% remaining. This food system is very important to Lekwungen, uh, especially Lekwungen women, and um, it's a traditional role within certain families within Lekwungen that manage these food systems, sustained them and passed that knowledge down, harvested, took care of the land, took care of that whole food system, and um, traded the Kwatlao. And that was the a main one woman in that family group would t take that kind of lead role, so to speak, and oversee how that was going to take part throughout the year, right from preparing those areas in the spring to harvesting, to pit cooking, to uh, doing prescribed burns, to uh, bringing in family immediately, an extended family, to come in and help do the harvest, and how she was going to distribute the food amongst the family that it came to help. So it's the people is what I'm getting to. It's everything. It's the land. It's the people. It's everything that grows within that food system. And uh, we're a part of that. So to me, it's many things. It's, it's more than the food itself. It's, it's us as the Chomuch. Indigenous food sovereignty to me means that you have the opportunity to harvest the traditional foods that your ancestors ate. So when you go out and there's not enough for everyone and you can only harvest a little bit, like that's not ideal, but it's kind of honoring the practice of harvesting still. 
yeah, indigenous food sovereignty is the freedom to harvest and eat and use the foods and medicines that are on your traditional territory. Here we have Jacinton, or Stalkwith, John Elliott, and we sat down with him and asked him a few questions. How has the landscape changed how we get our food? Well, I guess uh, one of the first big changes is in our, of us getting our food is that um, we've been restricted mainly to the land, the losing our way of life out on the sea, because really we're we're saltwater people, and all of our whole livelihood uh, throughout our own Saanich calendar year, moons, is uh, moving about in the homelands and territories freely. And when uh, colonizers came to this land and they wanted to control this land, and first they wanted to disconnect us from that land. So they just decided the government and churches uh, didn't want us talking about our foods, medicines, and things like that. Because in our language, in our, in our culture, when we're speaking about our foods or our medicines and plants, it talks about a belief system that is different than the Christian belief. And so our, our belief is given to us originally from Chels himself when he walked on the land with our ancestors. And, and uh, because that's different than Christianity, and the new arrivers to this uh, homeland of ours, the colonizers, when they arrived, they brought with them a Christian belief. And along with that Christian belief that, that, that some religions are good and some are bad. So because we didn't believe what they believed, they said ours is bad. And they didn't really want us to maintain that, that uh, historical connection with the homelands and territories because our Bible really is the land. Our belief system is embedded in all things around us in our natural environment, and that's our natural laws, and our, our own belief system is in all of that. So they wanted to disconnect us from all that, so they set out their plans to to destroy the languages and the cultures of the First Nations people around here in this country so that we wouldn't have that ancient connection, that ancient history of how that island came to be, how that certain tree came to be, how that certain animal came to be, how that certain fish came to be. We have those stories, how they originally were people before and were changed. And when we start talking about that kind of a history, about our foods and medicines and plants, and uh, all the things that sustain us within our sandwich world, it talks about our belief system and so they want us to lose that part of it. The Sandwich people have their own traditional calendar. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Well, the Sandwich calendar year is uh, according to the months. Mm-hmm. And Kelch, we call it Kelch. Now it interprets this as moon or calendar. Mm-hmm. So that's what we interpret it as nowadays. But Kelch is uh, the, the moons of the year. So they're straight from from Sisit, Nigan, Wachas, Boxes, and Squainus, Panahung, Chentucky, Chen Hunnant, and Theo, Chen Qualloch, Bakalin, Hosalino, Chelkresen. Those are the moons that we have in our language, and mm-hmm. there's the moons that we have, and uh, each one of those moons brings us a different form of activity within our Sandwich calendar year. So um, it's within the four seasons, Chen is the spring, Chen is the summertime. Uh, is the fall and is the winter and each one of them bring us different kinds of food 
our plants or medicines or something that we can use and some things we have to get in the early spring and yeah. others we have to get it towards the fall and uh, that's just the way it is so um, our Sanish people followed the Sanish uh, calendar moon throughout the, the Sanish year to uh, gather foods, medicines, plants and and uh, what we call qalang is to store food away for winter because there were no fridges and no no freezers and no stores so we had to have stores of food uh, away for the winter and last which could last is from probably October until April of the year so that's the amount of food that you have there's a lot of people eating that food and then that you have to have a lot of uh, dried uh, sun-dried food wind-dried food we call tail or smoked salmon even it was uh, dried clams, we could have that stored away. Everything was dried in the old day and uh, kept in storage boxes and baskets. And some of it was hung in the longhouses where it can get a little bit of smoke on it to keep the insects away from things. Can you tell us a little bit about the wetlands by Stelly's school there and how it used to be a traditional site? My late uh, uncle used to call it was always flooding. It used to be a fl- flooded, like almost like a lake. He called it the Lake of Chasl, our village name. And uh, what we call Chakal Tangoch, Chakal Tangoch is a boggy land. They drained it, and that was part of the colonization uh, process. They knew that we needed the medicines, plants, teas, and materials to make our reef nets out of that swamp and that connected us again back to the islands and our way of fishing. And so the, in order to stop us from going over to the swamp to get that, they drained the swamp intentionally so that it couldn't sustain the, the kind of uh, growth of, of natural trees and fibers and things that we needed out of there, the natural teas that were used. They were trying to disconnect us from there so that we wouldn't have the ability to go out and ma- make a net make a dip in it or, or whatever it might be that we got out, out of the swamp, swampy lands to help us stay healthy. Can you tell us the Skelelnoch tree story? Yes, Skelelnoch, if you interpret the word Skelelnoch, it means the bad ones put away. Comes from actually another, another language, Kal means it's bad. Elet is put away, the Noch part is the people. Skelelnoch is the bad people put away. And they were like the giants that used to walk on the lands with our our ancestors that lived here. And if you look across uh, North America, you'll find that there were giants living with all the different nations. They'll be talking about them, long ago giants. And these ones, they worked and played with the Xanish people. Sometimes they, they were so big, so much bigger and stronger than our, our people that sometimes they'd get rough and hurt our people and they... They kind of thought it was like teasing or joking or fun, but it wasn't fun when somebody actually really get hurt. When they were acting like that, and Khel's creator came to them and peered to them and said, it's wrong to be the way you are, like a nukhtkwinta, like a bully, doing those things. You should be kind in your ways, not being rough and hurting, wanting to hurt people. He says, I'm only going to warn you once. Next time I'll change you. So he left and... and Sometime long after that, and then they were playing else, which is uh, our form of uh, field lacrosse. 
and then they were getting rough and they knocked some dog. Some people were getting hurt, and then they then they heard howls. They get the wind, a wind came and they could hear howls coming. He was coming like on the wind, and they could see him, and they wanted to uh, run away because he knew, he they knew he already told them to stop being rough and hurting people. And uh, so they started running and running away from him. They were running all directions. And, and uh, Hells just spoke to them all at once and he said, you can run as far as you want to run, but when I say for you to stop, you'll stop. You'll stop. And that's where your legs will be in the ground from then on. So they were running all over and some of the hills and far away. And he said, stop. Stop right there. And uh, so, and then he changed them into all the different trees that are now in the forest. All the, all the trees that now he said, your legs are going to be in the ground. And if you look at the big, uh, uh, big main roots of those trees, it goes right into the ground like, like legs. And so that's what he's talking about because uh, they were being unkind. And kindness is a, a teaching for our people to be kind to one another be kind to one another. And so um, when he changed them and then uh, they became the ones that then would be protecting us with their their materials that we use, the bark and the wood, and, and make make our longhouses and uh, protect us from the weather with the, with the roofs. Mm -hmm. And all this was to, just like the Creator uh, made them see and understand their own mistake what they should, should have been doing. Anyways, they were changed to the trees. He took, he took that giant spirit away from them because he was big and strong, but he misused his strength. So he took the spirit of the, the giants and he, he, he made them like small, like small little people in the forest. That's who they are. They're the spirit of the forest and that's who they are. I don't like to say his name, but because uh, it's like a prayer name. Mm -hmm. But uh, they're still in the bush. They're still up there. And they have, a, they, even if they're only like only about two feet tall, they're really strong. They still have the strength of a giant. And um, they used to carry a club. And they could hit a tree three times. Boom, boom, boom. And you could hear this huge tree going down because they were so strong. Hit it three times and go down. We used to hear it when we were kids. We used to hear it from the house. We could hear it up mountain trees falling down just from that bang, bang, bang. And then you hear it crack and knock other trees down. You hear some other trees go down with those big trees. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah he has a name, but we'll just call him Spirit yeah. of the Forest for now. We're sitting down here with uh, Papakia, Ashley Cooper, who works at Papakian Hayot at the Theolnu Tribal School. She works as a teacher leading workshops. How can you teach Indigenous food sovereignty? So start incorporating it into some of your lesson plans. Start teaching uh, some of the, the kids, students, or people about uh, what, what, is, what are Indigenous foods, why they're important, 
uh, who, who's affected by them, people, animals, the land, um, spirits of it as well. Um, you start teaching them um, the common names, you could start teaching them um, botanical names for them, the Latin names, and then you could start teaching them the indigenous, the true names by them. Um, there's resources out there from First Voices, or Tim Motler has a word list. He also has a dictionary. Um, the Hussainich have released a dictionary for the Sinchatha names for that. Um, and just start incorporating them as much as you can. What is your level of involvement with Indigenous food sovereignty? I find myself uh, getting involved in food sovereignty by uh, eating Indigenous food, uh, telling people about it, um, teaching people how to grow it, how to identify it, how to harvest it sustainably. And um, I involve myself in a lot of gorilla-style plantings as well. So when I harvest, I'm always um, um, trying to plant more of it as well. So there's more growing um, and to grow it and teach people to do that as well. What do you mean by gorilla gardening? Uh, gorilla gardening is um, you're planting um, the, the plant or the food or the medicine um, and you're not asking permission from anybody for it. So if you see an open spot in uh, an open plot that's not being used, you can plant stuff there. If you see uh, ditches that aren't uh, really being used or growing anything, you can plant stuff in there. Uh, I, I encourage everybody to do that. What kind of plants would you say grows well in ditches? If you wanted to plant stuff in ditches, you could plant stuff like cattail, tule, you could plant willow. Um, camas grows really well in ditches as well. Um, stinging nettle, a lot of indigenous plants um, you can find in books that are aquatic plants as well will grow in ditches. Um, on top of ditches where it gets dry, you'd, you'd uh, have more meadow stuff like uh, yarrow. Um, I mentioned camas before, nodding onion. Almost any indigenous plant will grow resiliently in its own territory. You work in education. What are some frequently asked questions you get about plants and restoration? Uh, how can we start teaching this? Um, mm. That's one of the most, uh, most asked about questions, and is it appropriate to be teaching this? If settlers or non-indigenous people are asking me, uh, I always say yes, it's very appropriate to be teaching people this. Everybody needs to know how to identify indigenous plants to understand the importance of it as well, but to help sustain it and to um, make sure people aren't tearing down important plants on their, on their um, property as well. Um, but once you start teaching students and children this, they're going to grow up with this knowledge and they're going to incorporate that into their life. But how do we teach this? Just on our website, we're going to have more resources available as well, open source for everybody. What are some of the traditional place names of these sites? Mm-hmm. So food names, traditional uh, traditional names of the territory are really important. Uh, the Hussainich would uh, name certain places after what's growing there. So there's a place called uh, Hagen, Hagen Bight, which is um, now, I think it's been called Qunis Park, and it's just over here in Qutatlip. But the traditional name for it was Kachmingang, uh, and that's the place that you would go and harvest your Kachmin in Qutatlip, um, in over here in Sartlip. Uh, West Saanich, and um, that's no longer Gachmin anymore. It's just a big grassy field, 
and half of it's been developed for horses and stables as well. But knowing um, traditional names uh, of spots, no, we know that Kachmin's always been growing there. So if we want to start doing more restoration sites, that's that's actually next on my list to turn back into our Gachmin place. Um, but it also helps with other restoration work for the future. So there's another place called Ch'itnuch Ela, and that's down in Sartlip. And we know um, the, the owls really like that area. So we have to think of that when we're um, talking about restoration and we have to include them into our restoration plans, as long with other places in our territory. How can the community help with invasive species? We've had our garden program here for um, under 10 years now. Uh, and I've been working here for almost four years. And uh, we teach weekly workshops with the, the students at the Llewellyn Tribal School uh, about teaching them about indigenous foods, plants, medicines, and technologies. We teach weekly workshops with them and we'll focus on a few plants per workshop and we'll teach those plants over and over again throughout the whole year. And um, we'll teach them so that they can uh, learn how to identify these plants in their early stages during spring, summer, fall, and winter. They're able to identify these plants throughout the whole seasons. And now we're sitting with Earl Claxton Jr., who also works in Papakian Hayot. Earl, are you able to say what kinds of medicines these plants are used for? Yes, the, uh, <clears throat> the medicines, um, there, there's many, many, many medicines that went in the forest when we lived there long ago in, in longhouses and such. Uh, the forests were our... Um, hardware store, our pharmacy, and our food. And also, when I talk about indicator, uh, it's uh, things like uh, the um, ocean spray or ironwood, when that one blooms, which is in bloom right now, it's, it's the best time to go hunt for the deer. <coughs> and when that same bloom turns brown, later in the summer that's the signal it's time to to go out and uh, catch the salmon and the reef net out in the gulf islands and that same bloom also is a medicine and um, it, the flowers were picked off that plant and made into a tea and it was used for uh, old people and babies for that had diarrhea so it was a these kind of knowledge is, is kind of important for for many people not only First Nations but uh, my granny was a, I guess what you'd call an ethnobotanist that's the study of our knowledge of uh, the traditional uses of plants and um, I've kind of followed in her footsteps uh, in interest in 
growing plants. So I really enjoy my work here at uh, Papek and Haut. Can you please tell us a bit more about pit cooks and that style of cooking? Uh, that's part of the work that I do is um, uh, reintroducing the um, some of the old cooking methods and and the foods back into our communities because of uh, uh, the diet, the Hunitum diet or a European diet, just hasn't been good for First Nations peoples. We're uh, getting ill and starting to die younger. Uh, getting um, diabetes from the, the sugar and uh, heart disease and w the Sanish long ago my dad said we ate salmon every day he said um, but once in a while he said we'd have something different and he said when his aunt or his mom went to start making supper he'd be watching to see what she reached for and he said it was salmon so he was really tired of eating salmon every day but it was a it was a good thing for our people because we regularly lived beyond 100 years old and being ill or sick was a, a rarity and our people believed in uh, karma where if you did good things good things happened to you and when you if you did bad things bad things happen to you and part of the bad things would be becoming ill and if you became ill you were supposed to reflect on your life on what it was that you did that caused that illness to fall on you and it was such a strong feeling I can remember hearing my grandmother who was dying from cancer saying what was it that I did in my lifetime that was so terrible that's causing this illness to come and take me and, and she refused to take any chemotherapy or anything because she she truly believed it was something that she had done in her life can you talk about reef net salmon fishing and the harvesting of clams that was uh, at, as i say in the the moon of the the sockeye or the chunthaki and my dad used to say that um, that uh, the word sockeye, the moon of the sockeye or chanthaki, and my dad said that uh, the word sockeye was um, Saanich's contribution to the English language because we used to catch a lot of the salmon and then we traded things that we couldn't get here. And when the Hunitan people came, they had many things that we we desired, like uh, steel for for our knives and uh, different foods. And one of the foods that was affected, I think, here in Saanich was we uh, the uh, camas bulb was our our uh, potato long ago. And uh, I asked my dad about that because they're cooked in the pit cooks. And I asked him how much salmon did they, or sorry, how much camas did they put in there? And he said, sacks and sacks. And up to that point, the biggest bulb I'd seen was about the size of my thumbnail or so. Um, and I sort of thought, my gosh, they must have been digging for weeks to, to get sacks and sacks. Uh, 
but I found out that um, the Sanich discovered that when the, those bulbs that of the camas are uh, dug up and then uh, replanted, it, that it stimulated bulb growth, and they get big bulbs the size of the of their fists, mm -hmm. and so that uh, then I understood how they could get sacks and sacks of uh, camas, and the camas was good for us and good for our diet because it uh, was. Uh, converted the starches in there in the slow cooking in the pit, changed them to uh, good sugars. And when um, the Quinitum came, they introduced uh, the potato to us, and it was so similar to the way that we cultivated the, uh, the camas that the Sanich easily switched over to using uh, just the potato to the point where today many Sanich don't even know that we used to eat it or many haven't even uh, tasted a camas. Mm -hmm. So that's our, our goal here at Papakan Hope is to be able to supply the community or a feast with enough camas for, for their feast. We have a, a story about um, the, uh, the origin or where clams uh, came from. And the Sanish belief is that uh, it was a, a shy family uh, that were, whenever anybody ever came around, they, they would run and hide, and they had places to hide all over the place for when anybody ever came around. So one day they were down at the beach, and they heard that Hales was coming, the creator, and they didn't want to get changed into something, so they they buried themselves in the sand and all you could see my dad said was the whites of their eyes looking up through the sand and when Hales came he said to them he knew they were sensed they were there and he said I know that you're there buried in the sand and since you like to be buried in the sand so much I'm going to change you into clams for the benefit of the Sanish people. And he threw some magic dust on the sand and transformed them into clams. And because each of the family members had buried themselves at different depths, it gave rise to the different kind of clams that we have today. <coughs> and so clams have been a, a big part of the, of the Sanish diet. For, for as long as anyone com can remember, or in the courts they call that uh, time immemorial. And um, so harvesting clams, I feel, has been a, is a treaty right uh, and should be protected under the, the uh, Constitution. But uh, the oceans, I think, are the Squinitum's uh, uh, dumping grounds. They, they really don't care if they pollute or, or ruin the ocean, the cleanliness. And uh, we've lost the clams. We can't harvest them anymore because they're contaminated. And Fisheries and Oceans doesn't try to uh, do anything to remedy the situation. They only come and uh, uh, patrol our beaches. And if any of our people are 
digging the clams, they go there and make them dump them out so that they won't eat them. So now we're sitting down with Sarah Jim, who is a local artist and activist who is helping restore some of our Husqvarnish lands. What is some of your knowledge on some of the old harvesting sites in Husqvarnish? I work down in Sneedquith, which is in English Todd Inlet, and I do invasive removal. So the invasives we take out are blackberry, Himalayan blackberry, English ivy, pea vine. It's right beside Butchart, so sometimes exotic plants fly over from there. And in place we plant things like fir trees, sword ferns, berries, thimbleberries, stuff like that. And these are all good for not only indigenous people to harvest for foods and medicines, but also for the rest of the ecosystem. So the indigenous pollinators love the native flowers and also like the deers and rabbits and all that. So in English, Sneedquith can be translated into place of the blue grouse. And this is because the blue grouse were so abundant in the area. I've been told that Every single branch on every single tree had a blue grouse nesting in it. That's how abundant it was. And the blue grouse is a signifier of abundance. So they had a lot of foods to eat. They had a lot of places for shelter. It was their home. So Sneedquith was the original first Saanich village. The first Saanich man is from there. His name is Slamuch. He came down with the rain, with all the traditional teachings and every single Saanich person is descended from him. So Sneedquith is a culturally significant site for that. About a hundred years ago, a cement plant established itself in Sneedquith and totally disrupted the ecosystem. It devastated everything, and that's why all the invasive plants are growing there. So what we do with the Sneedquith Resiliency Project is we take out those invasives and try to restore the ecosystem by planting these native plants. And as I said, not only for the people, but also for the animals. How can a community help with these invasive species? If you're at your own community or at your home and you notice these invasive plants, it's totally okay to remove them because you're actually helping the environment. And in turn, it's great if you plant native plants to replace them. So you can always go to Saanich Native Plants, which is a nursery on Halliburton, and you can go buy pretty much any native plant you can think of. And this is great for the pollinators because they've co-evolved with these plants for so long that that's the food they need, that those are the vitamins and nutrients that they've grown up with. I kind of compare it to how indigenous people, a lot of them can't really drink milk because they didn't evolve with cows. A lot of them are lactose intolerant, so native pollinators need native flowers. And now we're sitting down with Cheryl Brace, a Lekwungen woman leading restoration for Kwetlal, which is Camas. Can you tell us a bit about some of the old harvesting sites? Well, I guess first I'd like to acknowledge part of our ancestral lands is yeah. what we're on right now. Uh, traditionally, this is known as the Chakonan family group. And one of the names for this area is uh, roughly said, because I don't say it that, I, ours is really deep in the throat, and oh. I'm afraid if I do it, I'll start spitting. <laughs> but it's um, Sangyaka is one of the names here, which roughly translates to the place where the snow never melts. Mm -hmm. 
And in our uh, language, we refer to what's now known as Mount Tommy as Bacalls because it looks like a white head from um, what's now known as Gyro Park. So if mm-hmm. you came in by canoe, it's a very sandy beach. It looks like snow that never melts. It was rolling um, meadows going up towards um, what's now Uvic right from Gyro Park and some rock, uh, rocky outcrops as well. So it kind of looked patchy mm-hmm. like snow and, uh, and it made its way right into now what's known as Uvic and into what's known as uh, Mount Tommy. So it looked like a white head when mm-hmm. you come in from uh, the water. And this is one of the places that uh, my ancestors harvested camas and it was celebrated here as well. So uh, we had lots of celebrate in many places elsewhere. I mean, part of my family is from Jaconan, but we would have harvesting sites throughout our different family groups. Mm-hmm. And um, this is one of the places it was harvested and celebrations were held for Kualal. And um, it was one of the places we traded up and down the coast. So we traded, for example, razor clams with Tlalep and uh, Uligan from up north and sturgeon mm-hmm. from the Fraser and sometimes Wapato from the Fraser, but we had some here. So some years it wasn't as good. And uh, of course, some um, seaweed and whatnot from up further up north. And um, yeah, it was highly sought after. And um, it's very unique into what now is known as Canada because it's really the only place it grows. Mm-hmm. And the Lekwungen women were known as the women to go and trade Kualao um, for. It was in abundance. There was so much of it, and uh, it was maintained well by the women. And they traded um, quite a bit and shared quite a bit with family as well. And one of the ways it, it was cooked, well, the only way I know that it was cooked, and it's the way I cook it, it's in the pit cook, which mm-hmm. is, I guess you can say, somewhat like a slow cooker. <laughs> but it's in the earth. And um, I've never tried cooking it any other way. Um, basically, I do it the old way. I, I dig a very, there's different kinds of pits. Mm-hmm. And the one that's done for Kwetlal is a circle pit, and it's dug a few feet deep, depending on how much, how much I'm cooking with it. If it's camas by itself, I don't always cook a lot. The old people used to fill those pits with a lot of camas and have multiple pits going all at the same time. So sometimes I'll do demonstrations of camas with a smaller pit and non-Indigenous foods in the other pits to show how little there is left Mm -hmm. and the reality of colonialism. And that in itself is quite the demonstration and to visually see and for someone to take in. So you can eat it almost immediately as it comes out of the pit, which is delicious if you cook it long enough. Um, It's not necessarily sticking straight to your teeth. (laughs) So the old people would cook it for 24 hours to 48 hours and it would get darker. I've cooked some pits where it's gone right black and uh, you just basically, it's almost like licorice, the taste, it gets sweeter. You bite it. I wouldn't say it's exactly like licorice, but it's a mm-hmm. little bit. You bite it, and you just kind of put it in your mouth, let it rehydrate, and it, it's absolutely sweet. So in that, it kind of dries it, you can, and you can carry it, and it's kind of preserved in that way mm-hmm. for a little bit. Sometimes the old people would take it out um, once it's cooked, um, not totally blackened, but cooked almost like a, a golden brown, and um, mixing it with berries um, and flattening it and dry it, and that was mm-hmm. our fruit roll-up. And uh, sometimes it was cooked with other foods, and mm-hmm. it was kind of one of our sources of uh, flour. So it's a complex carbohydrate. It has inulin in it, so of course it's going to get sweeter when it's cooked, kind of like the onion. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just really easy on the digestive system, especially the pancreas. So it's definitely preventative to diabetes. Mm-hmm. Why is it so important to start taking care of these plants today, and what motivates people to get into that? Well, there's so many things, and it's often a question I'm asked when I'm presenting, uh, whether it's within the university here, college, or 
even in government's offices of what can we do. Um, and other things that I do is colonial reality tours. So that's often a, a conversation that comes up of what can we do as settlers to contribute to the land. And um, some of it's just knowing where they're living, where they're walking, knowing that deeper history is very important because then I think they would have a, anyone who's not Kwamuk is going to understand why it means so much to who we are as Lekwungen or wherever they might live and uh, to understand the history of the land they're on. I think that's a start. And uh, the other part of it is um, getting involved to help. So one of the things that I started doing is um, inviting people to come and help me do invasive plant pools. And whether they were uh, Songhees or uh, First Nations from elsewhere or non-Indigenous, they would come out and help with the invasive plant pools and help propagate and reinstate plants, um, putting it into their backyards or some of the things folks have been doing as well. I think that's a part of it. And um, being able to um, educate those who don't know any better as to what's going on, you know, not that uh, I'm asking them to um, take on our role and our responsibility just to stop somebody when they're feeling entitled uh, to say what is right and what is wrong when it comes to managing these food systems and ensuring that we're a part of that, um, we, that our role is acknowledged and a part of it when it comes to reinstating these food systems and uh, protecting what's left. What are some of the ways that Kwetlau or Camas has been wiped out? Colonialism is the biggest thing. Um, our first box store was um, the Hudson Bay Company. So they set up their fort right downtown in one of our uh, traditional harvesting spots. And so colonialism continued to spread on the land as well as within the plants. So colonization was happening by people and by land. So invasive species was brought in as well through plants and just really uh, taking over that uh, space that uh, Kwetlau grows. And of course in pollution that also comes with the issues of colonialism. How would you compare camas as like flower to flower today? Oh gosh, <laughs> I would say I'm biased. I really like the camas, and I think it's if we look at it um, traditionally, it's better for us, uh, for our our whole being, especially our digestive system, because it's an in, you know you see a lot of this introduced flower. It's a little harsh on the system, and you really start seeing the gr- increase of. Um, use of all of these introduced um, flowers and foods, that's around the time the increase of diabetes started to go um, up mm-hmm. in our communities. Like when you think 60 years ago, maybe 70 years ago even, there you, you probably was maybe one person who mm-hmm. had diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, I know it's epidemic across the table, but especially in mm-hmm. First Nations communities. Is camas a specialty in the Silicongan area? Oh yeah, it was highly sought after. It was our, I call it the camas currency, you know. It was our huge, one of our huge trade items outside of fish and other things too, but um, it was highly sought after because it's one of the few places it grows, as I mentioned, in what's now known as Canada. But it does go down into Washington and into the um, tip of Oregon. So it is quite unique. Um, and the way the women managed it, the Lekwungen women, it was so abundant in our, our ancestral lands. Would you say the climate here has a big part in that? 
Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, because it doesn't grow over in Squamish, for example. Yeah. It doesn't grow over in Hope. I mean, there's the odd little spot, but it looks like it may have been transplanted almost and uh, just to see if it would keep, uh, really get going. But the climate is prime in this area for Aquilau because it's quite drought resistant and we don't get as much rain as over on the mm-hmm. mainland. Is camas something you have to eat right away or is there a way you can preserve it for the next season? They're kind of like potatoes in a way. So you can kind of store them away in a cool, dark spot for Mm -hmm. a while if you're not going to cook it immediately. Um, For me, sometimes what I'll do is I'll go out and harvest and um, I'll just put them in a raised bed or in a planter pot if I'm not going to eat them right away as well. And then dig those back up, Mm -hmm. usually in a planter pot because it's a little easier. Sometimes if you're not, um, the old people and I do this sometimes to prepare in the summer or spring, sorry, I'll... um, kind of bring up the camas a little bit more and then I'll put rocks underneath so that it uh, isn't going to make its way further deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. It's a little easier to dig up. So you could do that as well if you weren't going to um, cook them all right away. Mm-hmm. Do you use any spices when you cook it? No. no. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, everything you cook with it adds a little bit to it, you know. So I've used all kinds of things when I'm cooking the camas. I'll cook it very, like I mentioned, it's um, picture a walk. It's almost like digging a walk and you're putting it in the yeah. ground. And that's how the camas was done by the Lukwanga women um, because there's different kinds of ways to do pits, right? As you know, there's some for the fish, there's some for the clams. And um, this one is circular and it's for the camas. It's a little, you know, it's kind of pretty deep. And um, I heat those rocks really, really hot. And then I put some plants on the bottom. So they're not always going to be the same, but my go-to generally is sword fern and slough. Mm-hmm. Um, and those in itself are quite medicinal. And they also add uh, some little bit of flavor. I put it into the bottom. So think of it like a rack, building it up so it's not going to get burnt on the rocks. And I put the camas in the center or any other foods I'm, I'm cooking. Um, and then I put more of the plants on top. So it's kind of getting kind of fully surrounded. Mm. And then I put the burlap sacks over top and any canvas I might have um, and the soil, and I let it slow cook. So the old people would have have definitely used that uh, same type of method, but sometimes I layer it. And that's one of the things they also, the old Mm -hmm. people would do too, is they would, you know, have some rocks in there and layer it with some plants over top and then more rocks, hot rocks on top. So sometimes they're put on the top. Uh, to kind of keep the heat in. So when you had a bigger pit with a lot more camas, you definitely would need to do that to keep Mm -hmm. that heat. But if you get good rocks and they're really hot, they can really, really, really cook that camas Mm -hmm. within 24 hours to the point of being blackened. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes I've used seaweed. Depends Mm -hmm. on where I'm cooking it and what's available and what time of year. Um, Sometimes I've used thimbleberry, maple, sometimes skunk cabbages used too as well. It's like our wax paper. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, I've used all kinds of different plants, and it does add a little bit of flavor. So I don't really spice it up, but I just, whatever I cook it with will give it a little bit of taste as well. Does the city of Victoria ever get in the way of growing or harvesting camas at all? It has. Um, There has been some good relationships and some not so good relationships. So when I talk about this, I mean just everywhere, all municipalities in general. So when I think of our ancestral lands, I'm thinking of Saanich, Oak Bay, Victoria, Esquimalt, View Royal, Mitchosen, Langford, uh, Colwood. That's all part of our ancestral lands. Um, it's quite challenging anywhere I go to do some harvesting in general. You know, I have um, a lot of 
non-chalmuch will mm-hmm. often address me and tell me I don't have a right to be doing what I'm doing and just hound me until I leave. And um, I learned to bring somebody at some mm-hmm. at points, at spe- specific spots especially, that's non-Indigenous and be able to say, can you t- talk to them? Because they just see me and they just want to yell. And I just back away and go on and do what I need to do. Um, and they, they managed to calm them down because they were non-Indigenous. Oh. And uh, being able to, um, they weren't seeing somebody they could just yell at. So they, they were somebody that um, they were able to have a conversation with and they were able to calm them down and explain, you know, mm-hmm. they're not harming the environment. We're actually contributing to the environment yeah. and we're a part of it. And uh, so there's those sort of problems. Um, we've had the, I've had bylaw officers called on me, police called on me when I've been harvesting. And um, I think it was around the late 90s when I started realizing, geez, you know, I need to like start talking to some of these folks actually working on the ground in these parks because that's our reality now. We're harvesting mm-hmm. in city parks and, um, and, and find out what they're doing on the land, like if they're using any kind of chemicals or, you know, pesticides or whatever, herbicides, anything that they're using. So I know when I'm harvesting what we're eating, mm-hmm. that's when I'm... The city of Victoria was the first one to actually be a little more cooperative. And those are the folks working on the ground in the parks. They were going, oh, you harvest in here. What do you harvest? And I went, well, I'm not going to tell you everything, but I'm just going to say I'm working in this area and this area. And we just started having conversations. And this was one of the head guys in parks. And we started talking about the importance of how to maintain these areas and uh, our roles traditionally. And I just mentioned that I can come in and help with some of the invasive plant poles and I see you have a nursery can you help with some of the propagating right on site so that we're propagating right from these indigenous plants on the ground that are local and he agreed so that sort of an kind of informal relationship Mm -hmm. that developed there but then he retired (laughs) so then there was like this relationship building that had to uh, start with another uh, group coming in and that became kind of not approachable and it was a little more challenging so at that time, back in the 90s, early 2000s, it was easier to talk to the folks on the ground. And then it's turned, you know, because I could talk to the folks on the ground, but not so much the politi- politicians. And it sort of switched in the last, like, five or six years, maybe eight. It's more easier to talk to the politicians and get them on side yeah. in uh, some areas, not all. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of the folks are, are, you know, they're a little more concerned about their union rights and what their jobs are and that impact that they felt it was having on them so that's when we started getting police called on us mm-hmm. and people telling us what we can and cannot do from the park staff i mean that was happening all along but more and more park staff were telling us well you can't remove that invasive you can't remove that plant you can't remove this one and I went, mm-hmm. well that plant whether you list it as invasive or not is really impacting this quitlal food system so it was a lot of conversations and meetings we had to have and eventually we had to sit, sit down with mayor and council to explain, you know, I really want to come in and be able to do some invasive species removal and harvesting without having to feel like I'm confronted every time by park staff. It's one thing when it's um, your citizens, but when it's your park staff, it's, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm-hmm. why should I have to be doing this every time? They agreed. They thought, well, okay, we'll go t- talk with our staff. They asked what I would like to see happen as a result. And I went, well, for one, I just don't want to be harassed. And a respect and understanding that this is part of my role as a Lekwungen woman to be going in and managing these food systems. And I'm a part of it and I'm contributing. I'm not destroying it. 
we can find ways to work together like I did with the previous parks employee. And I said, another thing I like is a tool shed. (laughs) (laughs) If I had that on site, Mm -hmm. then I just need a, a, you know, a lock that can be there and I could store my tools and Mm -hmm. others as well. So that way family or others a part of the community tool shed wanted to go do a pull. They could do it because as long as they know how to do it Mm -hmm. and how to be respectful, I'm okay with them going in and doing that without me even being there. They agreed, the mayor and council and the higher ups, but it was just a little more challenging. I still haven't been able to get the staff to put that in place on the ground. You know, there was always a roadblock of why they weren't doing it. How can a community help with these invasive species? I think a lot of that some people are going to have to answer on their own. But I think as it relates to something I'm doing, I don't want it to be where I'm inundated with folks, but I appreciate the interest and the willingness But I think getting involved with the community tool shed is one way. And the community tool sheds right on Facebook. We do have a listserv with Gmail. So that is also on Facebook, but it's also on our website for the Lekwungen community tool shed. Uh, So that's one of the ways they can find more information on how to get in touch with me. And then there's others that I have given access to, so they can also assist in adding them to the Mm -hmm. listserv if they want to take part in the polls. But I think also it's also being aware, once again, where you live, no matter where you're living or visiting, and just being aware and being able to uh, call the people that are being quite ignorant and and difficult to Indigenous people on what they're doing. What are your hopes and dreams for the future? Because this was a a place, not just here, but this is one of the places here at UVic where uh, it was known to celebrate food and known to traditionally, I'm going back hundreds of years ago. And it was one of the places known to come and trade. And those are some of the things I'd like to see for Quetlal, is to be to the point where we can actually not just have a small pit cook, we're having a sampling of it, but mm-hmm. be able to have an abundance to share in the community, but also an abundance to trade and to be able to do that again up and down mm-hmm. the coast and have that celebration of our traditional foods and mm-hmm. trading up and down the coast again. That'd be wonderful. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the ultimate goal and this work is to ensure it's here 100 years from now with the future generations and so that um, not an elder standing before <laughs> gener- yeah. young generations mm-hmm. telling them what camas used to taste like, what it used to look like, where it used to grow, and our old stories. So that's why I do what I do. Haishka CEM, thank you very much to stock with John Elliott, Papakia Ashley Cooper, Earl Claxton Jr., Cheryl Bryce, and Sarah Jim for contributing your knowledge about Indigenous food sovereignty. This episode was produced by me, Nick Henry, with help from Peter Underwood. This program would not be possible without the generous support of the Community Radio Fund of Canada. If you like this episode, check out our other episodes and subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts.